This program is a presentation of UCTV for educational and non-commercial use only. I'm not, um, I'm, I'm not an experimentalist so much in my writing. I mean, I'm not so interested in effect in writing. In other words, there are performance people who are very interested in the effect on the audience. It's much more dramatic. Um, or they're interested in creating a new movement in literature. They're interested in um, perfecting a stance, really. I'm just interested in the writing itself, not, not the effect of the writing. Thank you. I'm going to read just a little bit first from uh, the novel that Quincy mentioned, which is called Saving St. Germ. And it's, uh, I don't even know if it's in the bookstores yet, but it's just out. Um, the, uh, the only thing you have, I'm going to read a, a paragraph, well, actually, I'm going to read a section that uh, is in the first chapter um, and uh, involves two of the main characters. The, the, main, the protagonist is a woman named Esme Charbonneau-Talek, and she's a biochemist slash molecular biologist who becomes a, theor a theoretician in science. Sounds really boring, but I s promise you it isn't. Oh, I hope it isn't anyway. Um, she uh, has a daughter named Olivia, whose nickname is Ollie. And Ollie is a very gifted but slightly disturbed child. Um, she speaks, Ollie speaks as a, I was recently on Michael Silverblatt's program on KCRW, and he said she's, the child speaks as if she's Gertrude Stein. She has a kind of strange um, uh, language of her own. What's happening in this section is that um, Esme, the protagonist, has taken her daughter, Ollie, to one of those infamous tests that they give kids these days. They give pre-school tests or pre-kindergarten tests. You have to be admitted based on your scores, right? I mean, you might not get in if you don't know Wittgenstein or something like that when you're five years old, right? So um, she's feeling very put out as me, and she's driving with Ollie next to her, and uh, that's where we begin. Now as I drove out of the valley, her humming beside me, I considered Ollie, the way Ollie fit into the world. When I wore my red glass beads, Ollie would crawl into my lap and finger them one by one. Hot, she would say. The beads are hot. Other kids might have pointed out more immediately apparent qualities of the beads. They were pretty, red, one could see through them. But I could follow Ollie's logic. The beads were hot, from resting against the jugular pulse, against the heat at the curve of the neck. Now she smiled at me, chattering about the bumps in the road as if they were alive. Ollie said the odd thing, the unexpected thing. Ollie looked away from people as she spoke. She stared up at the ceiling. She stared at her sneakers. Sometimes she covered one ear and cocked her head as if she were intercepting a message from a satellite. 
She laughed occasionally, and she threw her whole body into laughing, making no sound at all. Sometimes she rocked back and forth on her heels in silence, and this was the crucial behavior in the diagnosis of possible autism. But I saw that Ollie was not in a pathological trance. I saw that Ollie was thinking hard. Ollie was, for the purposes of being Ollie, functional. And what else matters, I thought hotly as I changed lanes, remembering that day at the specialist. The kind of kid she is, she is. I'll protect her, her different way of looking at the goddamn storybook, the goddamn model galaxy. I thought burning of Silito's qualifying test. Each child was asked to parrot back a mindless narrative, some computer-generated listening text verbatim. I swung the wheel too forcefully, and she slid sideways in the seat and looked up at me. I smiled reassuringly at her. Daddy, said Ollie, suddenly sitting up. Daddy. She pointed at the bright metal bas-relief globe turning on top of the Paramount building. I attempted a feeble stand. You're sick. We should go home. Then against my better judgment, swung a quick left on Melrose and another through the Rococo gates into the Paramount lot breaking at the guard booth. I should mention that, um, which is something I forgot to mention earlier, Esme's husband is a technical director named Jay, and he works uh, on a TV series, and they're going to visit him now. There was a young guard at the gate, a small man who was working on resembling Paul Newman. <laughs> We're here to see Jay Talek. He's TD on drastic measures. The guard cocked his head at me and slowly smiled. He shifted his weight hooked a hand in his belt, looked up to the heavens, arched an eyebrow, then scratched his upper lip. Did he call your name up? No, but I'm his wife. I think I remember what soundstage he's on. The guard leaned out the other side of his booth and waved a van through. He turned back to me with a dreamy look, humming a little. The hair under his cap was the color of clotting blood as if his scalp had vacuumed up all the plasma from the capillaries in his face. Sorry, I can't just let you on. I have to call up, see if they left you a pass. I smiled sweetly and ran one hand back and forth on the leather wheel cover. You don't have to call up. It's really no big deal. The guard smiled, too, and hung his head a little. Sure, I have to. What am I here for, then? It is a big deal, I'd say. In fact, it's kind of a huge deal. His smile disappeared. I watched him work at a daunting expression. People try to get in here all the time, but they don't get far. I leaned out of the car window in a confidential attitude. I knew what I was going to do, and I was shocked at myself, but not enough to change my approach. Still smiling, I felt behind me on the back seat for my bag, pulled out my wallet, and flipped it open to a fan of ID cards. I held up my UGC Research Laboratories clearance badge and a card identifying me as a professor of biochemistry. Look, my friend, you got me. You're too savvy to try and bullshit. I'm going to tell you the real frightening story. I'm a biochemist, an underground operative, in effect, a spy for Superfund toxic dump cleanup. I sighed and shook my head sadly, staring through the windshield. I could feel his eyes on me. Oh, God, where to begin? Did you know that there are giant, illegal, 
liposuction dump sites all over Los Angeles? Think about it, just for a second. Have you ever wondered where all that fat they suck from jiggling thighs and bellies and buttocks actually goes? I looked around furtively, then leaned out the window, speaking sotto voce. I'll tell you where it goes. You may not want to look at it, my friend, but the reason we're ha we've been having so many earth tremors lately <laughs> is because they're piping blubber by the pound under the ground surface of Los Angeles. Soon we'll all be skateboarding on a layer of subcutaneous, subterraneous fat. Hey, don't laugh. He shook his head, pawing the ground like a puppy. I'm sorry, like a pony, his expression scornful. But he did look a little shaken. I saw him glance again furtively at my ID. Hey, I'll tell you more. The La Brea tar pits are an adipose swamp, a seething mass of old love handles, eyelids, and saddlebags. And nobody knows. I'm here today posing as a visitor, but the fact is you've got one of the biggest blubber depots in the city right here on the lot outside your executive offices. And my orders are to check it out. He looked straight into, we looked straight into each other's eyes. He moved his lips, but no sound came. Do you think, I said, staring into the back of his head, I'd be here at all unless the situation was really grave? Do you think I'd bring my kid into this? Then he got mad. This is not funny, lady, and you're not intimidating me. As he spoke, I covered my mouth with my fist and pumped out the background music from Jaws, which Jay had recently gotten me to watch. Jesus, you're weird, he said. <laughs> I think of myself as a poet first and a novelist second, so I feel more comfortable in poetry. Novel writing is still new to me, so we'll see what happens. My mother was, a, she wanted to be a writer. And she still writes, um, but she memorized reams of poetry and recited the poetry to me. And um, <clears throat> she, uh, I think she, because of her, I began writing poems for birthdays and Christmas and so on. I mean, it's a, it's a long way back to think about that, but I, uh, yeah, those are probably the first things. I always wanted to be a writer from the time I can remember. So to get to that from, to, from that to Red Trousseau, which is my new book of poems, is a huge leap, but I can see the connection. I'm going to read now from Red Trousseau, which is my new book of poems, um, just out. And uh, the first poem I'm going to read is called Field Trip. Uh, field Trip, the term, of course, calls to mind a pastoral setting, nature, children going to um, oh, tidal p tide pools and forays into the woods. In Los Angeles, when my daughter, where we live, my daughter was in kindergarten, they went on a field trip, but they went to the downtown police precinct. Just, you know, there's flora and fauna of all kinds, but it struck me as kind of ironic. Field trip. Downtown on the precinct wall, hangs the map of gang territories, blocks belonging to the Red Bloods or the Blue Crips. Colored glass hatpins prick out drive-by death sites as the 25 five-year-olds pass by. They hold each other's hands behind their tour guide, a distracted man, a sergeant, speaking so far over their heads the words snap free of syntactical gravity perpetrator, ballistic. The kids freeze in place, 
made alert by pure lack of comprehension. Then, like the dread medfly, they specialize, touching fingerprint pads and then their faces. Observing the coffee machine, the plastic cup that falls and fills in place. The laser printer burning in the outlines of the most wanted beneath a poster of a skeleton shooting up. It's not so much that they are literal minds as minds literally figurative. They inquire after the skeleton's health. <laughs> to them, a thing well imagined is as real as what's out the window, that famous city, city of fame, all trash and high cheekbones, making itself up with the dreamy paints of a first stage alert. The sergeant can't help drawing a chalk tree on the blackboard. He wants them to see that justice is a metaphor, real as you or me. Where each branch splits from the trunk, he draws zeros and says they're fruit, fills each with a word, arrest, identification, detention, till sun finally blinds the slate. Not far away through double thick glass, a young man slumps on a steel bench, mouthing things. A clerk tallies up personal effects. Now he comes to the gangs, how they own certain colors of the prism, indigo, red. He doesn't tell how they spray paint neon facts over the commissioned murals. The kids listen to the story of the unwitting woman gunned down for wearing into the war zone a sunset-colored dress. She was mistaken for herself, someone in red. She made herself famous the way people do here, but unconsciously becoming some terrible perfection of style, bordering as it does on threat. The sergeant lifts his ceramic mug, etched with twin intertwining hearts, smiling like a member of a tribe. Later on the schoolroom floor, the kids stretch out, drawing houses with chimneys, big-headed humans grinning and waving in lurid, non-toxic crayon. Here is a policeman, here a crook. Here's a picture of where I live. My street, my red dress, our planet, moon, our sun. I, I feel it's, uh, it's not necessary for poets to read their work aloud, but if they can read it well, it's a real gift. Because there's, it's a way for people who are in the audience to enter the poem. And to hear the voice reading the poem refreshes it in a way and allows entry. I do think that you know it's important to go back to the page and to and to make sure that you read the poem and hear it in your in your head. This is a short poem about <laughs> about uh, intemperance, I guess. It's about that terrible state of mind you get into when it's, if you ever maybe you haven't done this, but if you ever sat up late at night drinking wine and arguing about religion, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> If you're an ex-Catholic, inevitably you get around to Lucifer. 
I always liked Lucifer, not just because I like his name, but I just thought he was kind of a cocky guy. <laughs> he was really and he had, some, you know, he had some interesting ideas, and after all, you can't forget he was most loved of God. He just kind of messed up. Lucifer. 2 a.m. and we're on Lucifer. Arguing, drinking, one of us a believer. I say, if that beautiful light-named angel, once most loved of God, fell, he must have kept falling into insight scattering his illumination, plummeting, coming apart into a broken new deity, one that divides as the woman's face in darkness, the man's face in quick rip slashes of light. Starry dark, down and down she falls into her empty glass. The night sky lights up with all he refuses to let go cutting edge, I guess, if you interpret it to mean just, you know, the sort of razor's edge we all walk as writers, then I certainly fall into that category along with every other writer who's ever written, I guess, or who's tried to do something as a literary writer. But it's um, somewhat obscure to me as, as a term. I think, um, you know, Pound said, Ezra Pound said, make it new, which is a sort of manifesto for poets, and that's what we try to do when we write. So in that sense, this is the cutting edge, I guess, being in part of this series. It's okay, you don't have to <laughs> you don't have to do that. This is called To the Muse. To the Muse. The Muse in poetry. Mm. Traditionally was a woman. Of course, you know the you know who the muses all were. They well they, maybe you don't, but it doesn't matter because at one time, this is long forgotten, at one time when you wrote an epic poem, you, you, you invoked the muse of epic poetry. When you wrote dramatic verse, you invoked the muse of drama, and so on. And then muses became sort of degenderized, and they, uh, it became just an idea, the idea of the muse. So this poem plays around with uh, the idea of a muse inspiring us, the image of a woman, the image of a woman leading us to war, as in a figurehead on a ship. Um, and uh, it, it recounts a, a period of time in our history, the Persian Gulf War, a recent uh, period of our history, to the muse. She danced topless, the light-eyed drunken girl who got up on the bow of our pleasure boat last summer in the pretty French Mediterranean. Above us rose the great gray starboard flank of an aircraft carrier. Sailors clustered on the deck above cheering, and the caps rained down. A storm of insignia, S.S. Eisenhower. I keep seeing the girl when I tell you the Eisenhower's now in the Gulf, as if the two are linked, the bare-breasted dancer in a war about to be fought. Caps fell on the bow, and she plucked one up, set it rakishly on her red hair in the introspective manner of the very drunk she tipped her face dreamily up, wet her lips in odalesque. Her arms crossed akimbo on the cap. Someone, a family member, threw a shirt over her, and she shrugged it off, laughing, palms fluttering about her nipples. I tell you, I barely knew those people, but you, you liked the girl. You liked the ship. You liked to f You told me. The sex of politics is its intimate, divisive plural.
we, us, ours. Who's over there, you ask? Not us. Your pal is there, a flyer stationed on a carrier. He drops the jet, shrieking. On a deck, pitch dark, he lowers the nose toward a floating strip of lit ditto marks and descends. It's like writing haiku. The narrator is a landscape, a way of staying subjective, but humbling the perceiver, a pilot's view. When you write to your friend, I guess that there are no margins. You want him to see everything you see, and so transparent is your kind bravado. He sees that, too. Maybe he second guesses your own desire to soar over the sand ruins, sit yourself in the masked pit, and rise 1,500 screaming feet a minute into an inaccessible shape, falcon, hawk, Issa's blown petals. Reinvent war, then the woman's faithless, enslaved dance. Reinvent sailors bawling at the rail and the hail of cliché, flash of legs on the slave deck, Break the spell, reverse it. Caps on the waves as they toss away their uniforms, medals, stars. Then the girl will wake up, face west, a lengthening powerful figurehead swept gold with fire. The waves keep coming, the you, the me, the wars. Here is the worst of it, stripped, humiliated, or dancing on the high deck, bully-faced, insatiable. Here is the lie that loves us as history personified. Here's the personification. Muse, odalisk, soldier, nightfall. Swear to us this time you will make it right. My husband is I guess you already know, certainly through Quincy's introduction as an actor. Um, and it's very peculiar for someone who is not in the acting field to, to observe the backstage and um, crew's eye view of the actor. I once, well, I guess I have many times gone to movie sets and seen just how boring it is to make a movie. You think of it as what we see finally is very exciting, usually, but when it gets to the screen. But the process itself is very lengthy and, and and repetitive and time-consuming. Um, but I had the ex strange experience of watching David get shot and killed, <laughs> but having him, you know, he'd be shot and killed and blood would pop out of his chest. He'd fall down and then he'd get up again, walk over, have a coke, come back, <laughs> fall, get shot, fall down. So it's very peculiar. And it, uh, uh, it inspired this poem, which is called Last Take. I watched them killing my husband. Trained assassins, pumping round after round from behind a camouflage truck. They crouch toward his crumpling form. Under the white floodlights, blood jets sputter from his chest. His head's thrown back. He shouts out a name sliding down the white wall against the damp flag of his shadow. A little guillotine shuts, hands sponge the wall. He stands, alive again. So there's no reason to fear this rehearsed fall, his captured cry, the badly cast revolution that asked his life. 
the damask roses painted on the folding parlor screens of the phony embassy are real in a way, but the walls are fake, and fake too, the passion of these two naked human bodies embracing on the Aubusson. Nevertheless, they obsess the eye like any caress. Off camera, the actor stroking his stubble of beard, the actress's hands on her own small breasts, presented with the mirror of our sentiments, it seems possible to believe that we love the world, ourselves, waiting in the wings like extras, full of desire projected away from us. These sky-high fingers of light imply, offhand, all night, we stand in for God here. There is nothing to fear. He gets up and falls down again in slow motion. A boom swings into the frame, then out. Loaded dice are shaken unto green felt before the trembling hands of the unwitting victims. A roulette wheel turns, the red, the black, chemin de fer. The train crosses the border. Inside, rows of people jammed together, watch, weep. Like art featuring life, the real sky behind the starry backdrop fills with stars. The lovers kiss. I want to cry out, how much? How much do we love each other? But the director in his cherry picker signals another take. The sky grows light. It's late. You know, if people are aspiring writers, it's important to understand that there's not one way to do it. And if you read those books that tell you you have to, you know, have the perfect setting and perfect paper and perfect quiet, they're crazy. Well, I mean, I write on envelopes when I'm at a stoplight, you know, in the car. Yeah. And I think you can write anywhere. Thanks. I don't think any writer should feel obligated to fit into a cookie cutter, into a form. I think the worst advice is to say it must be done like this, you know, because it can scare a young writer away from um, com completing who she is or he is as a writer.